Uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. I think it will be on the screens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phygeria and <laughs> And, yeah, e yes, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, we're here. There's a sporting event happening, I suppose. I, uh, I spent my morning watching a different sporting event. We watched cycling this morning. The true sport. It was fun. Um, but yeah, we're here, and we're in Acts 2, and this is, we made it to Acts 2. <laughs> this is probably one of the most important passages in the book of Acts, possibly in the New Testament. This is a pretty important passage. This is, some call this the birth of the church. This is where sort of the church launches from. We've taken the last several weeks now, and we've looked at um, what has happened at the beginning of this book since the ascension? Jesus told his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. To wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. To wait that they might be clothed with power from on high. And today we see the promise, that promise fulfilled. Our passage today, we see that the fulfillment of that great promise it's good news that he is not a man that he should lie. He, when he promises something, he fulfills it. When he makes a commitment, he follows through. I'm sure we've all, we've all experienced uh, let down. We've let our kids down, I'm sure. Made promises, empty promises, things that we can't fulfill. I was thinking about that this week. We, I took, took Elijah, my oldest, to go get a bike fit, to go get sized up for adjusting his bike. 
And we walked in there all ready for his appointment. We had made an appointment weeks ago, like because this guy was booked out. And we made an appointment weeks ago, and he's got a big race coming up next week. We're all excited for it. We show up, and they say, we're so sorry. That guy doesn't work here anymore as of this morning. And just like, (laughs) we made this appointment weeks ago. There's nobody else that can do a bike fit? No, there's nobody else. Here's a referral for somebody else, but he's months booked out. So it's, it, was, it was a little bit of disappointment. You make, a, you make a, an arrangement, you expect things to follow through. The good news is, there's a thing about this this week, God follows through on all of his promises. When he makes a commitment, he makes a promise, he follows through. And so the disciples had received this promise that go and wait, go and wait. I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. The promise of power that we looked at in Acts 1.8 or the end of Luke, Luke 24. And it's an incredible thing, this promise, being clothed with power. This experience we looked at a few weeks ago, it's something, it's something beyond just the indwelling of the Spirit upon salvation. We know this, I think, partly from the way Jesus talked about it. It's something unique, clothing with power, the Spirit coming upon you. I think we also see that from the effects of what happens at the end of this chapter. You guys have read ahead. You guys read the book of Acts, right? See what happens with the rest of the story. This promise that the disciples would receive, it was something incredible. And they are told to wait and to receive this. And when they receive it, uh, it's ultimately for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the gospel spreading throughout the earth. We're going to see that through the rest of our passage tonight. It's the context of all of the promises, that ultimately you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? To bring the good news to the ends of the earth. That's what it's all about. It's all for the mission that God is at work trying to accomplish. Side note here, that mission that God is trying to accomplish of bringing the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, I don't know if you realize this, that's not done yet. So I think this promise is still very much valid for us today, this promise of extraordinary power from on high to bring about the work of the gospel is very much valid for us today. Also, it's important to note, as we get into this, the disciples were not strangers to the person or work of the Spirit. This is not a new thing for them. I think we, we tend to look at this and think that, like, this is a novel thing, the Spirit moving. But the disciples saw firsthand in the person of Jesus as a man empowered by the Spirit. They saw the working of the Spirit. They saw it continually at work in the ministry of Jesus. They experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit firsthand. Remember when Jesus sent out the 72 to go and uh, uh, go into the outside regions? He sent them out, and this is what they said when they returned. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were empowered by the Spirit. They heard Jesus promise the coming of the Holy Spirit, this helper, 
that would come. And in John, end of John, we get this, John 20, they received the Holy Spirit. Post-resurrection, Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The disciples had heard Jesus command and talk about the Holy Spirit. This is not a foreign concept, the person and work of the Spirit. They weren't strangers to this idea. But then we get to our passage tonight. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. These guys waited until the day of Pentecost. Ten days. Ten days from when they received the promise. They didn't know ahead of time how long they would have to wait. That makes waiting easier typically, right? If you, if you know, like, in ten days, this, is, this good thing's going to happen. You can kind of mark off the time. You can cross off the dates. Makes waiting a little bit easier. But when you don't know, they didn't have the timeline. They didn't know that at Pentecost this would happen. They just were told to wait. It'd be easy, I mean, as I was thinking this week, it'd be easy to imagine, okay, they saw the ascension, they're told to wait, they go back a Sabbath day journey, and they're like, okay, this evening, the promise is going to come. No. Okay, a couple days go by. Three days. Okay, this is like the, the resurrection, right? He was in the grave three days, and... He's going to come today. No. Seven days. No. But on the tenth day, that's when Pentecost had fully come. When Pentecost had arrived, the gift came. The Pentecost, you have to look at what is, what is this. What is Pentecost? Anybody know what Pentecost? What it is? The day of Pentecost was a Jewish feast, a Jewish festival, that was held 50 days after Passover. It was to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. In the Jewish rituals at the time, the first fruits of the barley harvest were presented to God at Passover, and the first fruit of the wheat harvest, which was much more substantial, was presented at this festival. Jewish tradition also says that Pentecost marked the time, the day, when the Lord gave the law. They actually called it the season of the giving of the law. In the Old Testament, they, they celebrated the receiving of the law with Pentecost. And in the New Testament, we celebrate the receiving of the Spirit. Pentecost. Pentecost was the best attended of the feast. It was one of the few feasts where they would make a pilgrimage to Israel. And this was the best attended because the weather was right. And so there was thousands of people. We know there was thousands of people because later on in the chapter, 3,000 of them come to Jesus. Thousands of people were in Jerusalem for this festival. It was the Feast of Harvest. That's what it, from Exodus, that's what it was called. And it was a symbolic 
I mean, you've got to think, why Jesus? Why did you pick Pentecost of all the days? The outpouring of the Spirit with extraordinary power uh, to bring the good news of Jesus to spread throughout the earth is about harvest. That's exactly what happened. 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. 3,000 people were saved. The harvest had begun. This is the first fruits of the harvest. Day of Pentecost. So when, continuing with verse 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound. Some of your older translations probably have they were in one accord. They were together. They were gathered together. They were with the same heart, the same love for God, the same trust and hope in his promise, the same expectation. They were in the same location. They were together. They were believing for the same thing. They were recognizing their need for something outside of themselves. They couldn't do it on their own. They knew they needed this promised gift. They recognized that they didn't have everything they needed. They had come to be honest with the reality of their own lack and their need for the Holy Spirit. And in verse 2, suddenly, suddenly, that's just, that's how God does things. Suddenly. Seems to be that's how God moves. The Holy Spirit is free and sovereign and at work. And he's not bound by your time frames. He's not bound by your expectations. He does what he wants to do. And it's a beautiful thing because he's always here. He's in us. He's among us. He's here. You can count on his presence and that he's daily with us. He's indwelling us and empowering us with grace to walk in obedience and faith. He's with us. And yet, you can't make him come or do anything. He comes and he comes suddenly. He's not our servant. He's not a mystic force that you can manipulate like Star Wars. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He is a free and sovereign. He's the second person, th- sorry, third person of the Trinity. He's, he's part of the Godhead. So here's what this passage tells us about the Holy Spirit. We'll get through the rest of this, but... The gift of the Spirit, it's promised to us. It's worth waiting for. He comes as he wills, but not always based on our expectations. This passage does not give us a formula to bring something from God. This doesn't give us a formula of a way to make God show up. This doesn't show us a way to earn the presence of God in a spectacular way. This doesn't give us 
There's no way to earn the Holy Spirit. Let's keep looking. Verse 2 and 3. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Throughout redemptive history, throughout history, even outside of the New Testament era, the Holy Spirit has made himself known Invisible, audible, touchable manifestations. He has shown up in spectacular ways. In the Old Testament, there was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Jesus' baptism, there was the dove, the voice. In Acts 4, the building shakes. Acts 6, Stephen's face shone like an angel. In chapter 16, there's an earthquake. Throughout history, the Spirit shows up and makes himself known in spectacular ways. Sometimes visible, audible, touchable, physical manifestations. The question is, why does he do this for some and not for others? Why does he do this sometimes and not others? We don't know. There's no answer for that. He does what he wills. And he moves when he wills. But we do know that he is not a fire. He is not a wind. He's not a dove. He's not a warm glow. And I think it's important that we don't misunderstand the way he shows up to assume that's how he's always going to do it. Or that's who he is or what he is. He is free and sovereign, and he does as he pleases. There might be fire. There might be a sound, but he does as he pleases. So these sights and sounds that we have in Acts 2, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't even say that there was a rushing wind. It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. These little fires that appeared over each other. I think this would probably have reminded the disciples of the times in the scriptures when when God's presence fell on the temples. At the inauguration, so to speak, of the temples, the commissioning of the temples, when God's presence fell. The spirit throughout scripture is often associated with these two phenomena, with wind and with fire. In fact, the word for spirit in Greek and Hebrew, is the same word for wind or breath, both in Greek and Hebrew. God was and is doing something new. I think in the Old Testament, we saw his presence fall like this on a temple, on a physical place. And here, what we see is individually on people who are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's presence falling and commissioning them, just like we saw on the temple. When they saw these tongues of fire, when they heard this violent wind, it filled them with this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. I think there had to have been. I mean, that's 
Just think about all the stories in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God breathe, or hovering over the breath of God, hovering over the waters in creation. Genesis 2, the breath of God going in, being breathed into this newly created man. It's the same word. In Ezekiel 37, the story of the dry bones, the breath of God moving over the dry bones and bringing them back to life. The fire falling on the offering of Elijah. All of these things were probably dancing around in their minds as they're seeing these manifestations of the Spirit. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They're filled with this overwhelming sense of awe and amazement at the presence of God. They're, they're just experiencing something they've never experienced before. And imagine with me for a second. So up until this point, we know that they've been praying. They've been praying. And these are, these are devout men of God. They're praying. They know their scriptures. Imagine with me that they've been praying Psalm 23. They've been thinking about Psalm 23. They've been thinking about, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. They rejoice and they know that God is with them. They know that God is there. Why? Because the scripture tells them that he is there. He's in that room. But then what we see here in our passage tonight is all of a sudden, the suddenly, something happens. And quickly, their knowledge is transformed from just a, a cognitive knowledge of the Scripture, and we trust and count on the facts from Scripture, to now an experience of God's presence in a way that they'd never be the same. To an experience that turned this knowledge of God's, of the truth that God is there, to now an experience that they have felt and know that he is there. They see the fire on each of their heads and they hear the sound of this loud noise. They're consumed with not just a cognitive certainty of God's presence based on a knowledge of scripture, which is good, but now they have an experiential certainty based on this extraordinary outpouring, this clothing with power from on high. Fire begins to burn in their heart and in their mouth. We see that tongues of fire. And the sound of wind that surrounds them begins to show off the power of God. They're overwhelmed with the greatness and the majesty of God, and it begins to spill out in praise. Praise, they're praise in another language that they don't even know. They're undone in worship, so much so that people actually think they're drunk with new wine. We know that this was an overflowing of worship and praise because when people hear what they're saying in their own language, what do they say? 
Look at verse, look at verse, where is it at? 11. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. They're proclaiming, they're praising God for all that he has done. Luke says in verse 4, when he explains what this experience is, he says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're overwhelmed with the greatness and the majesty of who God is. John Piper says this about this passage. He says, the fullness of the Spirit The fullness of the Spirit here means that the Spirit's experience of the greatness of God becomes our experience of the greatness of God. You're so full of the Spirit who is so full of experience with the Godhead that now you become one with that experience, filled with the Spirit. And the flames on their head take this knowledge of God that they have from the scriptures and from their experience with Jesus, and they turn it into a passion that cannot be contained or stopped or slowed down. I think this is why repeatedly, multiple times, but specifically in Ephesians, Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that our, the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, so that we would know Jesus. Because when you experience that, when, when you receive a revelation of who God is and the Spirit comes upon you, you're never the same. This violent sound of this wind, this fire that they experienced, that drowned out all of the incessant voices that, that tried to silence and bring doubt and, and quiet them and bring timidity. Every bit of remaining hesitancy, weakness is gone from these guys. They are experiencing the greatness of God and they are never the same. Tremendous boldness and courage and zeal is unleashed on these disciples. They give witness to the greatness and the glory and the majesty of the God that they serve. You guys, this is not an isolated experience. This is actually, when you look through the rest of Acts, this is how it happens. When the Spirit falls... There is boldness. There is a fresh witness that comes, and the gospel spreads. You can't have an experience with the Holy Spirit and not be changed. If you say that you've had an experience with the Holy Spirit and you live the same, I don't think you've experienced the Spirit that we worship, the Spirit from the Scriptures. He will change you. In Acts 4, when the Spirit falls, there's a fresh filling of the Spirit. And immediately after, they go out with boldness and proclaim the good news. I think that's the essence of what this whole passage is about. That's the essence. There is a fresh something incredible that happens with this outpouring of the Spirit. 
an overwhelming experience with the greatness and the majesty of God that spills out into a courageous and passionate praise and witness. I know there's a lot of attention. When you heard we're talking about Acts 2, you probably thought we're going to spend a lot of time talking about tongues. And we'll get there. We'll probably, a couple weeks, we'll probably spend a whole week on it. But I don't think that's necessarily the key point here. The key point is that they received this gift from God, this promise from Jesus of this empowerment from the Holy Spirit. And they were never the same. They experienced a boldness like they had never experienced, a passion like they had never experienced. Completely changed. So where does that leave us for this week? Probably with a lot of questions about tongues. I get that. (laughs) We'll spend more time there. But I think the takeaway for us this week is that from time to time, God does this. From time to time throughout church history, God has moved in extraordinary ways. You can read about church history, read some of the stories of the Great Awakening and and some of these early revivals that have happened. He pours out his spirit in new, sometimes uncustomary, dramatic ways. Things happen. Read about some of the stories, Jonathan Edwards. We call these times renewal or revival or awakening. There's lots of different ways of describing them. This story, Pentecost, what happens in Acts 2, was the first of these great outpourings. And until the gospel has so permeated the earth, until he returns and establishes his kingdom and restores all things, until he fulfills his mission on the earth and we are all disciples, making disciples, I think we should be praying that he would do it again. I think we should be believing for a fresh outpouring. We should not approach a passage like ours today purely out of like academic, let's look at the text. You can't do that as just some unrepeatable historic event. I believe that we're in desperate need in our city and county of God doing something remarkable, of doing something extraordinary and showing his power and his majesty and his strength, that he is far better and far superior to everything else that stands in opposition. That's, I think, our takeaway. I think that leaves us with one final thing here. Sort of a a warning. The end of this passage. Verse 12. The demonstration of God's power here, this, uh, this miraculous tongue, it causes amazement. The words here, perplexed, I highlighted these words, bewildered, amazed, astonished, amazed, perplexed. That's the response. 
bewildered, amazed, astonished. Luke's like scratching for words to try to figure out what's, what's, how are people responding to this? Perplexed. Here's the reality. The, that being perplexed and amazed, it gave way to two unique responses. Two options. Some ask seriously, what does this mean? And others, verse 13, they mock and they leap to naturalistic explanations. They say they're filled with new wine. They must be drunk. Here's the thing. I think whenever there's, whenever God's doing something, showing up in a unique way, we have those same two options. We can either mock and reject and just look for naturalistic explanations of what God's doing, or we can ask seriously, what does this mean? We can search the scriptures. We can, we can look. We can pray. We have the Spirit of God. We can ask for understanding. I think that's the thing. Some genuinely inquire. They test things. They hold fast to what is true. They, they search the scriptures. And some just can't even stand it. It's too much enthusiasm. Too much. This is just it's too much. Must be new wine. My encouragement to us is that we are in desperate need of God doing something extraordinary among us. Sonoma County needs it. It needs an experience with a real God lived out amongst a real community of people who have been changed by an experience with a God who is alive and well and active and moving among us. These are the things that we believe. Do we live that way? <laughs> Do we experience that? Do we share that amongst us? Do we talk about when God shows up and answers prayers or leads us to pray for certain things? Are we believing that God could do it again? That he could show up in a fresh way? Are we praying for that? Are we asking God for renewal in our city? A.W. Tozer said this, to desire revival and at the same time neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. Edwin Orr, J. Edwin Orr, wrote, history is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. I think they're right. I think if we're going to see anything happen remarkable that, that changes the way people relate to their God, we have to, we have to figure that out. We have to become a people of prayer like they were in the, that upper room for those 10 days. With no timeline, no deadline, no concrete expectations of God, you have to do it by then. You have to do it now. 
just expectation. He said he's going to come, and I believe he's going to come. Let's pray. He said he's going to do it. I believe it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Stand up. Worship team can come up. Father, I just thank you. That we have this story. That this passage is the is the first fruits. This is the first of many outpourings of your spirit. That you even more than us, want to pour out your spirit in a fresh way. God, I pray that you would begin to captivate us, that you'd cause us to look to you, to understand our desperate need for this promise of the spirit, our desperate need for an outpouring of the spirit in a fresh way. God, we do ask that you would come in a remarkable way, that you would show off your power and your goodness and your kindness and your mercy among us. That you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of Jesus. That we would experience you in a fresh way. That we would be forever marked by that experience. That we could not help but testify of the goodness of God that we've experienced, we've felt. God, do it again. We've heard of the stories of your fame. Do it again, God. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name.